0: Thank you, Doug. Well, it's good to be together again. I want to thank you for making a point of coming to hear from the Lord through his servant Isaiah. We have much to get through today, so we have to hit the ground running with not a lot of introductory comments, except to remind you that we're looking at the book of Isaiah and we're comparing this book to a series of mountain ranges, Uh, So it has different peaks and valleys, and as you're reading uh, the book of Isaiah, remind yourself as you go of the structure. Where are you on this journey through the mountains? Let's uh, refresh ourselves of the big picture structure of this book. We started last week, or last week, yesterday, looking at the first major section, which is chapters one through six. And these really are the introductory chapters for the book. And and they present to us a dilemma. On the one hand, we have the present reality of God's people. They're sinful, corrupt, self-seeking, religiously hypocritical, idol worshipers. They don't care about the poor and the marginalized, God's justice or righteousness. Uh, They exalt themselves. And then on the other hand, we have God's promised reality where they will be holy. They will... Live and dwell with God forever, and they will be a light to the nations as people from all over the world come to Jerusalem to worship Israel's God. And in chapter 6, that gets slightly resolved for us. Uh, as goes Isaiah, so goes the nation, and as goes the nation of Israel, so goes all of the nations. That is, hope to get from the present reality to the promised reality, is not around judgment, but through judgment. All of our sin has to be burned away. That's where we went yesterday. The next major section in the book of Isaiah, which we will look at today, is the biggest. And it's thematically the most difficult. And it goes from chapters 7 through 39. And on the dark side of these chapters, it's all about judgment. But on a more positive way of looking at these chapters, these chapters are supposed to, or their intention is, to incline us to trust. They make a case for why God's people ought to trust their God. And to get from our present reality to our promised reality, the only way is through judgment, as I said, and the only way to make it through judgment is to trust that God will carry you through. That's what we're going to look at today. The next major section of the book uh, are chapters 40 through 55. And these are perhaps the most celebrated chapters in the book because they're all about salvation. There's hardly, there is, but hardly a difficult word in these chapters. It's all about comfort and encouragement that God will deliver his people. And so we'll look at that tomorrow. And then finally, in chapters 56 through 66, the fourth major section, having been delivered from exile, having been delivered from sin, having been delivered from hell and the prospect of hell, how ought we live? We ought to walk in grace, not taking grace for granted, Well, let's take a closer look at today's major section, this second section, chapters 7 through 39. As I said, in this major section, Isaiah identifies trust as the central issue for God's people. And the question that recurs over and over and over again in a variety of different forms is, who are you going to trust? This remains the Central question for us today Who are we going to trust? On that note, let's pray and invite God to help us to trust Him and to understand what it is that He'd like to share with us through these chapters. Heavenly Father, we know that You are trustworthy, You have never failed. Your word has never returned to you empty or unfulfilled. All of your purposes come to pass and your promises are sure. You've not hidden yourself, but you've revealed yourself to us through the ages in a variety of ways, climactically in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to trust him and in trusting him, trust you. I pray for us this morning as we try and disentangle many different historical facts and figures and names, as we take a look at uh, several chapters in this difficult book, that your Holy Spirit would unseal it for us, help us to understand, help us to see, and to hear. And I know and we know that this is entirely by your grace, in the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Oh, Spirit, I pray, I don't know most of the people here, and you do, I pray that you would take the words that are spoken today and minister to each one of us individually according to our need. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that makes these chapters so difficult is there are so many different names of people. There's a lot of uh, historical information that is assumed and not uh, really teased out for us. So in preparing this morning's talk, what I've tried to do is boil it all down to the, the, the simplest package that I could. We're not going to mention a lot of those details, but give you a general idea of what's going on in the world at this time. So a little background before we get started. All of these chapters have the same historical backdrop. That's not true for the whole book of Isaiah. Once you get to chapter 40, and we'll talk about this tomorrow, you have a different historical backdrop. And then when you get to chapter 56, again, you have a different historical backdrop. But for 7 to 39, we are in about 740 to 700 B.C., and our focus is Jerusalem, although we could expand that to Judah and expand it even further to Israel, the divided kingdom. So there's your first historical fact. After Solomon, a couple hundred years before this, uh, the kingdom of Israel was split into north and to south. And Isaiah is going to be speaking primarily to Jerusalem, in the, which is the capital of the southern kingdom. But his prophecy is for both the northern kingdom, which is called Israel and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. But our focus is in Jerusalem with the kings of Judah. And they have a problem. And the problem is that there is an empire, the Assyrian Empire, who has grown just all of a sudden and its appetite for conquest has been baited. And so Assyria is starting to expand its borders. And Assyria's number one goal is to make it to Egypt and to take Egypt. If they can take Egypt, then they, in their minds, will have conquered the world. And you might say, well, that doesn't really matter for Israel and Judah or Jerusalem. But it does because they are right in the path of the war machine coming down toward Egypt. And so what Assyria is doing is taking these nations as it goes. And so if you're the king in Jerusalem, you're very worried because the most powerful army in the world is about to come right your way en route to Egypt. What are they going to do? Well, what would you do? You're small. Yeah, run. Their options are not many, but God, through his prophets, and not just Isaiah, but others as well, comes to the king of his people and says, Do nothing. Don't ally with anyone. Trust me. I will protect you. You're my people. This is my nation. Jerusalem is my footstool. That is my house, meaning the temple. And no foreign army is going to take it unless I call them to take it. Trust me. And so at the very outset, the whole point is don't make any foreign alliances. Trust God for protection. Now put yourself in their position. It's much easier said than done. Let's take a look at the structure of this section. So that's the backdrop, now the structure. This, this whole section is one massive mountain peak. You call it the mountain of trust. And the summit of the mountain is the very central part of these chapters, chapters 24 and 27, So that's the the peak of this mountain. Now, if we come down in both directions, we have two sections on both sides of 24 to 27 that are saying pretty much the same thing. On the one side, you have chapter 14, verse 28, through to the end of chapter 23. On the other side, you have chapters 28 through 33. Coming down the mountain in both directions, still, you have a small section on both sides flanking this middle material, and you have chapters 13:1 to 14:27 on the front end. And you have chapters 34 and 35 on the other side. And they are more or less saying the same thing. And then in the foothills of this mountain range, you have chapters seven to 12. And then on the back end, you have chapters 36 through 39. Now, if this is all I told you about this major section in Isaiah, you have huge advantages for reading and understanding. As you're reading through the book, just take a picture of this or burn this into your brain and understand that each of these sections is working together. 7 and 12 is working with 36 to 39 to make basically the same point. 13.1 13.1 to 14.27 and 34 and 35, they're working together to make basically the same point. 14.28 to 23.18 and chapters 28 to 33 are, are working together to make more or less the same point. And all of this material is leading us to the really the main point, which is chapters 24 through 27. Now, this whole major section in the book of Isaiah, which is chapter 7 through 39, is bracketed by what I'm calling the foothills, and in these foothills, it's the story of two kings. In chapter 7 through 12, it's the story of King Ahaz. In chapters 36 through 39, it's the story of his son, King Hezekiah. One trusted God and the other did not. So we're going to start by looking at their stories. We're going to start on the outside and we're going to work our way in and we're going to end this morning in the middle at the peak of this mountain, at the climactic point of this major section in chapters 24 through 27. So let's begin in the foothills of chapters 7 through 12. In this section, we get some of our most cherished passages from the book of Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. Or we have chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us, a child is born. do this. Or again, in 11, one through five, which we'll look at, out from the stump of Jesse comes a shoot. But what are these passages all about? When will you hear these passages in your local church? At Christmas time, right? So obviously, chapters seven through 12 is all about Christmas. It's all about the coming of Jesus Christ, the conception in Mary, and then his birth. And and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's absolutely true. But when is the last time that you cozied up to the fire on Christmas Eve, and the patriarch of the family opened the Bible and says, I'm going to read you a Christmas story. And then he took you to 740 BC, the Assyrian crisis. Right, it's just, it's just not how we understand Christmas. And yet, I would make the argument that that is exactly how God wants us to think about Christmas. He wants Christmas to be backdropped by King Ahaz and his Assyrian crisis. He wants us to think about what would you do if you were in Ahaz's position in the most powerful army in the world, who is ruthless, by the way, They come through and it's total war. Once they conquer you, the kings are publicly tortured and killed in front of the people, and then the people are systematically removed. Brutal. Is that the backdrop to Christmas that we often think about? Let's talk about this Christmas story. Here's the background. 735 BC. King Ahaz is on the throne of Judah in Jerusalem, and he can't sleep. And he can't sleep because his two closest allies have declared war on him Israel to the north, and to the north of them, Syria. Not to be confused with Assyria. Israel and Syria are afraid of the empire Assyria coming in. And so they said, our only hope is to bind ourselves together and to, to, to form a coalition. So hopefully, we'll have just enough strength that Assyria, when they're coming through, will say, it's not worth our time or our energy or our casualties. We're going to go around these three countries and just take out Egypt. So King Ahaz can't sleep because he doesn't know what to do. Israel and Assyria want to declare war on him because he doesn't want to go into their coalition. So he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Everyone wants to destroy him. Enter the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah comes to King Ahaz while King Ahaz is by the washer's pool and he's surveying his defenses And Isaiah says, don't worry about any of these foreign powers. God will protect you. King Ahaz is like, I don't know. Like, I want to believe, but I don't believe. And Isaiah says, well, ask for a sign, any sign, as high as heaven or as low as Sheol. God's going to protect you. No, I don't want to bother God. You know, he's probably too busy to give me a sign, and I'm kind of too faithful anyway. And then that was all a farce. He doesn't believe. He doesn't trust God, and Isaiah knows it. And so then Isaiah says, you don't believe, you don't trust, therefore this is what's going to happen. God is going to protect you from Israel and Syria, but Whereas Assyria was going to go around you and go down, now they're going to take over all of Judah. I wanted you to drink from a gently flowing stream, but instead rushing water is going to come through your land and you're going to be drowning up to your neck. And the image there is that the only thing left in Judah is going to be Jerusalem. Judah's going to fall, but Jerusalem will remain. An act of God's grace. In spite of Ahaz's total lack of faith, total lack of trust, God is gracious to him, saves Jerusalem, and that's the context for these beautiful passages about Emmanuel, about a child king. God says, You're not a very good king, but I love my people. And I'm going to give them a king who trusts me. He's going to have the trust of a child. And that's what these are all about. I'm going to give you a child. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder and he will trust me. Going over to 11, verses one through five. There shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. That's a rebuke against Ahaz or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Ahaz, you're a bad king, but I'm going to give my people A good king. Now, this is one of the big questions of the book of Isaiah. Who is this king? Who is this king that will trust God? And one of the questions is Is it Hezekiah? Let's go to Hezekiah. Let's go to the other foothills on the back end of this section in chapters 36 through 39. And in order to do this, we have to fast forward 35 years. It's 701 BC. Some things that we skipped over in chapters 8 and 10 is that God said uh, that, that Assyria would come in, and oh, I guess I did mention it, and they would uh, destroy Judah and lay siege to Jerusalem that Israel and Syria would be destroyed. Well, all that's happened. In the last 35 years, the judgment that God had proclaimed against Ahaz has come to pass. Assyria has come in and destroyed the whole region. All of Judah has been destroyed by Assyria. And only Jerusalem is left. And Assyria is about to raise up siege works around the city. And Ahaz's son Hezekiah is faced with a dilemma. He is on the throne of Judah in Jerusalem. And he can't sleep because Assyria is knocking at the door. And if Assyria gets inside the city walls, they will ruthlessly torture him, his family. In what's left of the nation what should he do enter the prophet Isaiah has been prophesying for almost 40 years and he comes with the very same message to the son of the king who failed to trust God he says do nothing God will protect you trust that you are his he loves you And he will not let anything come to pass. What does Hezekiah do? If he fails to trust God, what will happen? Jerusalem will fall. The most amazing thing about Hezekiah is he goes to the temple and he lays everything out before the Lord. He says, oh Lord, I am having a really hard time trusting you. I've got my diplomat down in Egypt... All I got to do is send the word and I've got the second most powerful nation in the world at my back. Do you really want me to do nothing? Do you really want me not to call on Egypt for help? And the Lord meets him and through the prophet Isaiah reassures him, do nothing. Do not put your trust in any foreign alliance, do not put your trust in Egypt. And so Hezekiah does what few of us in this room would do in such circumstances. He trusts God and he does nothing. And he waits and he trusts. And in one night, the Lord kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers camped all around Jerusalem and Sennacherib the, the king of Assyria goes home now that is a test in trust that few of us will ever 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 have to match 185,000 soldiers all around your tiny little city remember Jerusalem was not very big at this time do nothing trust me I wish that the story ended there, but Hezekiah begins to boast in himself and all that he has accomplished, and he invites the Babylonians, who are just a small power at the time, He says, look at me, look at all my riches, look at all that I've accomplished. And so the prophet, this is how this major section ends, comes to him and says, who do you show all your stuff? Who are you inviting? This is really the beginning of a foreign alliance with Babylon. You didn't ally with Egypt, but are you going to ally with Babylon? And Hezekiah says, yeah, I did show them everything. I am about to enter into a partnership with them. And Isaiah says, well, then your people are going to go into exile in Babylon because my message was clear, trust no one but God. And this whole section presupposes uh, the exile, which we'll talk about tomorrow. So this is a tale of two kings, three kings really. Because what we find out is that Hezekiah is not Emmanuel. Hezekiah is not the child king who has perfect trust in God. He did way better than his father. He did way better than most of us would ever do under such circumstances. He is an example to be emulated in that moment, laid out before the Lord against insurmountable odds, putting his future and the future of his nation in the hands of God. But he tripped at the finish line. And God's king doesn't fail, not ever, not at all, not a little. So he's not Emmanuel. So just hold on to that question. Who is Emmanuel? Who is this child king? On whose shoulders will be the government? I mean, we know that it's Jesus, but that's not clear here. It's not clear here. So that's really the major Point of these sections, who are you going to trust? Ahaz fails. Hezekiah succeeds, succeeds but trips. Everything in the middle, and I'm going to have to go over this extremely quickly, and we're just going to spend a little time on the mountaintop before we're done. But everything in the middle is answering the question well, why? Why should we trust God? What makes God worthy of our trust? Why not trust in foreign alliances? Why not trust in our own ingenuity? Why not trust in our own ability to provide for ourselves? And that's what all of the the middle portions are all about, answering that question. So so one way of looking at it, if you're going to read it through linearly, is you have the failure of King Ahaz. He fails. Okay, Let's go back to school, and from chapter 13 right through to the end of chapter 35, lessons in trust. Why should we trust God? So that when, by the time we get to the sequel, lessons in trust part two, or, or test in trust part two, Ahaz's son, King Hezekiah, we, the readers, have all this material that we can say, well, of course he should trust God. Of course, the best decision for Hezekiah to make is that he should trust God because we have the benefit of chapters 13 through 35. So if that's all you remember about that middle section, and I mean, it's a massive section, that, that, that's really what you need to know about those middle chapters, 13 to 35. God is in different ways over and over and over and over again giving us reasons to trust him. I want to carry you very quickly through 13 to 14, 27, and 34 and 35. In these bracketing sections, well, let's, let's take a look at thir- the first one, too, first. As we ascend up on, uh, after chapter 12 into chapter 13 and following, we get two oracles, one against Babylon and one against Assyria. Well, why Babylon and Assyria? Why, why pick those up? Well, Babylon and Assyria both represent the zenith of worldly power at different times in Israel's history. And in these oracles, God makes the point very clear. They're nothing. What? Assyria is nothing? Babylon is nothing? Exactly. Compared to the power of God, they're like grasshoppers. They they think that they're equal to God. They, they have tried to ascend to the power and the glory and the exaltation of God. But God's going to humble them, he's going to judge them, and he's going to bring them low. We're all the way back to Sunday night when I talked about there's only one who is exalted, and that's God. So Babylon and Assyria, they look powerful, they look scary, but they're not, not compared to the power of God. And in fact, in chapter 14, 26, the point is made very clear. I'm not really talking about Babylon and Assyria here. Yes, I'm going to judge them, says God. Yes, I'm going to bring them low. But this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. If God can take down Assyria and Babylon, there is no nation on earth that is God's equal. That's the point. Same point is being made in chapters 34 to 35. In chapter 34, you have this imagery of the whole universe rebelling against God. And so God brings the whole universe under condemnation and makes it a wasteland. You mean the whole universe doesn't compare to the glory and power of God? Precisely. And then in chapter 35, God says, But after I have humbled and destroyed the universe, I'm going to raise it up and make it fruitful again. I can tear down and I can build up. That's what those sections are about. Moving up the mountain in that subsection, chapter 14, 28 to the end of chapter 23, this is just difficult reading. Uh, it, it feels really boring. Uh, For us in Canada, because it's just 10 oracles against the neighboring nations of Judah. And we don't even know much about these nations now, uh, but God is making the point in every one of these oracles, none of these nations are my equal. He's actually making an even more profound point. In the ancient world, every nation had their own God. So the question wasn't, uh, is God more powerful than uh, this nation? The, the, The question to the ancient mind was, is our God more powerful than their God? And in this section, which we take for granted, the theology that emerges from this section, is that there is only one God over all the nations, That God is not only the God of Israel. He is the God of Canada. He is the God of the United States. He is the God of Russia and China and Japan and Australia and Chile. There is no other God. And, and, And we take that for granted, but that was not a point that was necessarily well known. And so God says, why would you trust any of the nations? They're all under God's judgment. I'm going to call all of them to account and they all will be found guilty and I will destroy all of them. So when you're thinking about making alliances, who do you want to make an alliance with? Do you want to make an alliance with a foreign nation who's under my judgment? Or do you want to make an alliance with me? The all powerful God of the nations. And that's precisely the same point that he makes in chapters 28 through 33. And and here we're really zooming in uh, on Hezekiah's reign. And the whole question through these chapters is should we go to Egypt or not? Should we trust Egypt or not? Assyria is a massive problem for us. Egypt might be of some help. Should we form an alliance? And at the beginning of the chapters, it seems as though Hezekiah is thinking, yeah, I think that would be a good idea. And so in these sections, judgment in chapter 28 is predominant, and there's just a little bit of hope. But then as we move toward the end, you can see almost Hezekiah changing his mind, although it's not explicit. And at the end, there's a lot of hope and a little judgment. So by the end of 33, there's the promise of a king again. Who is this king? Is this Hezekiah who's decided not to trust in Egypt or is it the king that was promised in chapter seven, chapter nine, chapter 11? Can't resolve that for you here today. So everything to, around the summit is giving us reasons to trust God. And now we get to the central section or the central subsection of this major section and this is, this is the slam dunk. This is where God says, you really want to know why you should trust me? I'll tell you why. And now we ascend above history. In the book of Isaiah, there is no peak in the mountain range that is the book of Isaiah that is higher than this one. This gives us the highest view of God's promises. It gives us the highest reason, the greatest proof for why we ought to trust God. And and what we have to do here is not look at, if everything else from chapter 13 to 23 and 28 through 35, if all of that is more or less looking at the historical context of King Hezekiah, when we get to chapters 24 and 27, we are now at the end of history, Isaiah fast forwards to the end of human history and we get a panoramic view over all of time and space, everything that has come before, and we're at the end of time. And what we find out at the end of history is that the whole world will come under the judgment of God. Open your Bibles to chapter 24. So remember, we've just come through these oracles against the nations. The major point was every single nation will be condemned and judged by God. So don't put your trust in them. And then we get to chapter 24. We're no longer talking about nations. We're talking about the whole world. Every nation that has ever existed. Every person that has ever existed. Taken in breath. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with his master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. What is the point there? No one escapes. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly Plundered. For the Lord has spoken his word. Whenever God puts that in, he puts it in there because what he has just said seems almost too big to believe. In this case, too terrible. But the Lord has spoken his word. This will happen. Go down to verse 17. Terror. And the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. What's the point there? You can't run from this. Judgment is coming. If you run from judgment, there's a hole to swallow you up. If you happen to climb out of the hole and you think that you've avoided judgment, then you'll be caught in a snare. You can't get away from this. This is going to happen. For the windows of heaven are opened and the foundation of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgressions lie heavy upon it and it falls. And it will not rise again. In case... you missed it. The imagery here is of the flood. The windows of heaven are open. The foundation of the earth's tremble. The earth is utterly broken. What, what God is prophesying through Isaiah there is another flood. Yeah, but didn't he say that he would never flood the earth again? Oh, precisely. And we get a, a real answer to this in 2 Peter where it's, it's not going to be devastation by water. It's going to be devastation by fire which may be metaphorical, but the point is this, uh, total destruction, and you can't escape it. Now, remember the context here, right? This is all giving us reasons why we should trust God. The reason that we put our trust in God is if you don't put your trust in God, you will be judged and condemned. So, yeah, foreign alliance might, might look attractive it might give you some short-term gain but there's a day coming where that alliance will mean nothing if you can't trust god during the assyrian crisis how are you going to trust him when judgment comes that's that's the point here contextually but there is some good news, and this is where we transition, that the highest peak of this mountain is not despair and judgment. And in fact, in the book of Isaiah, what we always have to know is that God never desires for his last word to be despair, judgment, and condemnation. It's always through judgment that we get to the highest peak, which is hope and glory and exaltation. And that's exactly where we're going to go now for the rest of our time. On that day, and there's seven on that day uh, sections now for the rest of uh, 24 to 27, we're just going to look at, at this one. So there's seven things that are going to happen on that day. What day? Judgment day. On that day... The Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. In other words, there's no rebel power that will escape judgment. This is not just for human beings. It's for demonic angels. It's for Satan. It's for every power that has rebelled against God. No one escapes. And that should be good news if you're on God's side. All the rebels will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Even the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. Again, we're talking about a judgment of cosmic proportions. That if your Hezekiah makes your crisis seem small. You see, I just want to remind us of how this works together. Oh, the Assyrians are nothing, there's a day coming that's much bigger than this. Now look at this positive promise. For the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of armies, reigns. Who reigns? Kings reign. On Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Now, just little Tag this as we go forward. We'll explore it more tomorrow. But, but Isaiah presents something profound here that he doesn't resolve. He promised a king in chapters 7, 9, and 11 in 33. We don't really know who that king is. Maybe it's Hezekiah. But here we're told that the king who will reign is the Lord of hosts, God himself. Yeah, but in chapter 9, we were told that it's a descendant of David. How is a descendant of David and the Lord God going to reign as king in Jerusalem on Mount Zion? Well, Isaiah never resolves it. And for more than seven centuries, I don't know how God is going to do that. Now, we have the answer, but let's not be so smug. Look at how wonderful this is. When this day of judgment comes, one of the promises is that the child king will come too. The child king, which is God and he's going to reign, and we will behold his glory. Chapter 25, 1 to 5 is then Isaiah breaks out in praise. Oh, glory to God. This is amazing. As much as I don't want judgment, on the other side of judgment is the glory of God reigning in Jerusalem as the king and revealing his glory to his people. On that day. So, who are you going to make an alliance with? Go down to verse 6. We're still on that day. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, a feast of food, rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. On that day, after judgment, God's going to host a party and Steve will finally get his invitation. (laughs) And there'll be dancing. And there'll be feasting. And look what God, the king, the host of the banquet will eat at the feast. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. Hezekiah, you're worried about death? You're worried about what the Assyrians can do to you? Don't worry about it. Trust God, even if you die at the hand of Sennacherib. God will swallow up death. And the Lord, will, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Every cause of sorrow and grief will be personally wiped away by the hand of God our King at a great feast where he swallows up death. So Hezekiah, I see your tears in the temple. Trust me. But God, I might die. Trust me. I don't have much time for much more, but I I can't help but go to 2619. God, I might die. That, That really is the worst case scenario, right? That you or those that you love will die? Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Come to the party on Mount Zion's hill where God is hosting a great banquet. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to its dead. And the reproach of his people he'll take away from all the earth. All of the, the, the reason that we should be ashamed and there's much reason, it's all gonna be washed and burned away. Then look at the last clause in verse eight. This too seems too big to be true. True but this is what it says, for the Lord has spoken. Now we get to the pinnacle of the book of Isaiah, rivaled only by maybe Isaiah 61. And it says this, verse nine, it will be said on that day, Now we're at the top of the mountain. You don't get any higher. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, The word wait there doesn't mean just bide your time until that day comes. It means through every difficult situation in life, in the most difficult days of Hezekiah's Assyrian crisis, he waited on the Lord, meaning he trusted that one day God would raise him back from the dead, invite him to a party at the top of Mount Zion where he would eat rich food, And drink well aged wine while God swallowed up death. I've trusted that this day was coming, and therefore I persevered in trust through the valley of the shadow of death. When death's shadow was cast over me, I knew of a day. The problem in the church, if I can just be so bold, is we think our salvation has already come. I said the sinner's prayer, I've been purchased and uh, sprung out of hell, now I'm going to go back to living like all my non-believing neighbors do. That just doesn't cut it. Because salvation is not about getting out of hell, it's about waiting for this day Revelation 19 calls it the wedding supper of the lamb. And and what what 24 to 27 does for Hezekiah, but should do for everyone, right? The Assyrian crisis is just an example of a test of trust, but we're tested daily to trust God, not by the Assyrians, but by other things. So will we trust God? Will our alliance be with God? Or will we make foreign alliances with the world? In Isaiah's day, this idea of trust was focused on military security. God promised to protect Judah and Israel without any need on their part to fight in a war. Working backward from that particular promise for them, The decisions and actions that they ought to take should reflect that they trusted that that was true. This is where it gets hard. How do we bridge this to current day? Because we don't have the Assyrians trying to take over NBC. And in our day, trust is expressed in countless ways. But climactically, and I can't get into all the examples, but climactically... God has promised to raise our dead bodies. He has promised to glorify us so that we are without sin. He has promised to give us a new heavens and a new earth. He has promised that he will set up his throne room in his new universe, his new cosmos, where we will behold him face to face. Do we believe that? Do we trust that? And if we do, does our life reflect that? When's the last time that somebody came to you and said, why are you doing that? And your obvious answer was, well, because one day I'll be raised from the dead. And I will no longer struggle with sin. And I will live with God How many of our lives are centered around that reality? If we work backward from the promise, then we can test ourselves and see if we do trust God. Do we really trust the gospel? Looking around the church in Canada, I don't know that we do. I'm sure we trust that on one level, But what would the local church look like if every member in that local church ordered their life with resurrection and future glory as the first and most important factor in every decision that is made? It's like like this. Imagine you had a rich uncle who came to you and he was 90 years old and he says, I'm going to die soon, I know it. I want to give my entire fortune to you. It's not worth much, maybe. Well, let's make him the richest man in the world. 151 billion, passing Jeff Bezos. If you knew that within the next decade, $151 billion was coming into your bank account, would that change the way you live your life today? You don't have that money in your bank account today but you know it's coming. That's exactly the same principle that we should be using. We're going to be raised from the dead. We're going to live forever with God. So why doesn't our lives reflect that? Imagine the kind of risk that we could take for the glory of God and for the extension of his kingdom if we truly believed and trusted In the promise of resurrection and glory. A life that truly trusts in the promises of the gospel will not look like the life of an unbeliever. We don't have to live for today. We don't have to squeeze everything out of life the first time. Unbelievers necessarily make foreign alliances with the world. Too many Christians are making foreign alliances with the world. But our only alliance is to be with the Lord God. Judgment is coming. If you trust him, he'll raise you back to life, swallow death, and you'll live with him forever. Let's pray. Oh God, there's so much material here and i'm i'm trusting in you to minister to each person here i pray that as they take more time to unpack the ideas that we've gone through i pray that you would remind each of us that we have a good reason to trust you you are trustworthy And everything that you promised will come true. Help us to live lives that make the world question us. And may our answer be, because we trust the Lord God to raise us from the dead, therefore we can take great risk. For your glory and the extension of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go with peace and great joy. It's a beautiful day. God bless you.